Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today, I'm talking with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She's a clinical psychologist, practicing therapist, a successful blogger and podcaster, and the author of one of my favorite books that I read this year, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. In this conversation, Margaret and I talk about different forms of perfectionism and where they come from, the importance of emotional vulnerability, what her idea of perfectly hidden depression is exactly, and how she works with her own clients to overcome it. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Margaret Rutherford, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nick. It's great to be here. And I told you before uh, before we began that I'm very delighted and honored because I realize you haven't had many guests on yet. And so I'm especially pleased to be asked so young in the broadcast. So thank oh, you. You're very welcome. Yeah, I'm a rookie, but uh, hopefully hoping to kind of build up uh, as we go. So let's start with some kind of general questions about perfectionism, you know, which is one of your specialties, something you've, you've written and talked a lot about. What's the difference between destructive and constructive perfectionism? Well, you know, it's funny. I really didn't use those terms until after I'd written the book and I, I, I wandered around trying to talk about it in the book and it really does uh, hit it very precisely. What's the difference? Constructive perfectionism is something that, you know, is, is a wonderful trait to have. It's uh, you enjoy really doing well. Uh, that just is innate within you that you want to set your goals high and you have good expect expectations for yourself and you and you enjoy that it's a process it's a process of learning of growing you make mistakes and you go oh well you know all right that wasn't a great direction to go but it is much more process oriented than goal oriented and destructive perfectionism um, which researchers in perfectionism tend to divide into three different types, but we can talk about that in a second. Destructive perfectionism is much more accomplishment oriented, not in the sense of needing a lot of acclaim, but that you must meet the expectations of others and you must over meet those expectations. And so when you really think about that and you think about the expectations your children have and your parents have and your friends have and your job has and your culture has or your city has or you know, you're just hyper vigilant constantly to make sure that you meet those expectations. I've used the uh, example of a swimmer who, you know, may be swimming competitively, but, you know, really he or she wants to beat their own time the most. They, they, they're judging how they're doing by how their body is moving in the water. And um, whereas the destructive perfectionism would have to win all the time and would do whatever it takes to win all the time and would feel great shame if they did not. Um, so that's a huge difference in the kind of impact perfectionism has. And, and you know, you, you can be on a spectrum, you can have a, some traits of the more destructive kind and some traits of the constructive kind, but we've also heard the terms, I remember in graduate school, we, I think I heard adaptive versus maladaptive perfectionism. Maybe a little older terminology, but, um, also apt. Yeah, I, lo I love that distinction between being kind of process versus result orienting because it, it, it is one of those things like whenever I love listening to interviews of, um, you know, kind of 
high achieving, ambitious, uh, successful people. I think one of the one of the striking things to me about that is often that you see what we tend to see are all these outcomes. We see the gold medals, we see the championships, we see the the novels, we see all the the, the results. But when these people get interviewed, they're like nerds about the process. Right? They 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 end up talking about sort of their routines or their you know like what to, how they feel when they're doing it or or. or and so I think that that's often kind of a, a, a clue. And I, I never thought about this until you're, you're kind of framing of destructive versus constructive in, in this I kind haven't of process. Heard anybody else call it that the process versus goal. That's kind of something I came up with. So some researcher somewhere will have to research that for me and see if it holds water. But it just makes a lot of sense to me, especially in dealing with the people that will say, no, no, I'm not a perfectionist because I'm not perfect in anything. And those are tending toward more of the destructive kind because they can't enjoy the success they do have if it's not, if it doesn't rate the best or the best they've ever done or the best they wanted to do. Whereas someone who says, oh yeah, I'm a perfectionist, all right. You know, and because I, I'm acutely aware of when I haven't done my best, but I do consider it a learning process. I mean, it's, you know, I had cataract surgery last month and my surgeon said, oh, well, now I'm a perfectionist. And I said, that's good. <laughs> certainly <laughs> hope so. <laughs> Two eyes, so please be careful. Um, but, you know, there, there's, a, there's just no joy in destructive perfectionism. There's no sense of true fulfillment. Um, when I've got someone in front of me and we're talking about this issue and I sense or have figured out they on the destructive perfectionism side, they will say, oh, well, you know, I've taken over the, the leadership of the church committee, or I've taken over this nonprofit, or I'm going to coach my, my daughter's soccer team or something. And I'll say, okay, so what are you going to take off your plate to do that? Because your plate's already full. And they look at me and kind of start laughing, Nick. They kind of go, well, what do you mean? I'll just get it all done. I'll do it more quickly. I'll just, you know, I'll stay up late. I'll get up early. And they don't even have a concept of what it would be like to give themselves a break and realize to really enjoy what they're doing. They need to monitor and modulate the amount and the quantity of what that is. I love that point about joy. You know, in, in my practice, one of the, when someone comes into my office and they, they were in a first interview or something, they mentioned being a perfectionist. One of my follow-up questions will be, I'll have them kind of describe, you know, a situation where they feel like they're a perfectionist. And, and one of the kind of diagnostic things I'm looking for is in my, in my vocabulary, the way, the way I think about it is, are they appetitively motivated or aversively motivated? In other words, are they actually running towards something because they're, they enjoy this thing or they love it or they, they get joy out of it? Or do they just happen to be running that way because they're terrified of something else? And so they're running away wow. from- so again, That is so wonderful. Whether they're aversely motivated or what was the first one you said? Yeah, so appetitively, like appetite, like they really want something. Uh, competitively, I thought you said competitively, like appetitively. I love it. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> you may be my next book. <laughs> I would definitely give all kinds of kudos for that. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's yeah, it's just interesting these different ways to kind of um, slice uh, perfectionism, and I think it's it's tricky because it's one of those words that um, has a kind of a clinical origin, but it's it's definitely seeped into popular culture, and it's something people just think of themselves in terms of. And so I think one of the great things you're doing, and that hopefully we're doing in a podcast like this, is helping people to to have new language to think a little bit more carefully about 
you know, how is this process, this, this tendency in me, is it working for me or, or working against me? Right, right. I, I love those terms. That is just really, because it's very, um, to me, it, it's, it's, it adds depth to the concept and helps people understand. Um, I mean, I, I've always wanted, I mean, I'm a perfectionist. Um, you know, I have an audio engineer and I have a podcast and, you know, he'll send it to me. And sometimes I'll hear a little something. I go, no, wait a minute. Is this the perfectionist in me that wants to mm. take out this um, or is it really, does it get in the way of the flow of things? And so I really try to monitor that myself, but I, but I don't, I mean, the difference is the joy and the fulfillment and satisfaction and, and the fact that you can sit there occasionally and do nothing. <laughs> you know, you have the ability to turn that switch off too. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. So in, in your experience, what, what are kind of some of the origins of destructive perfectionism? Like, where does this come? Is it just a personality trait or does, does it have an origin in childhood or, or how do you think about this? Well, I am sort of a, uh, not a sort of, I am, uh, my own sensitivity to trauma has gotten greater and greater the longer I have practiced. Mm -hmm. And so, although there are some ways of getting to this destructive perfectionism that, and, and absolute need to, to feel like you're in control, that's also a really important aspect of it. Um, I think it's a lot of things about your childhood strategy of how you managed to emotionally survive whatever was your, your cultural uh, factors or your familial factors or whatever. Um, I do need to, to go back a little bit and say that, you know, the one thing we've left out or I left out, you didn't leave out, I left it out of the destructive perfectionism uh, idea is that, um, it's also very fueled, can be very fueled by shame and fear. And we're about to talk about that now. So basically the idea is, um, uh, I had such fascinating conversations. Let me, I know I didn't finish that sentence. Fascinating conversations with 50 or 60 people who reached out to me that identified with perfectly hidden depression or as we're talking about destructive perfectionism. And I noticed in their stories, I mean, it was through their stories that I kind of came up with these pathways, how you get there. Because some of them, they were very diverse. Some of them were the star of their family and they learned early on that to get positive attention, they had to keep being the best at everything they could do. Any, anything they touched had to be golden. There were people who uh, grown up with alcoholic parents who had to become the pseudo adult in the family and either take care of the parent or take care of the kids. And so their own needs and wants or desires became invisible. Um, there might be just from a family who didn't allow any kind of sadness or um, anger or whatever, what darker emotions to be revealed. You were shamed for it. You were punished for it. It just wasn't done. You know, we don't talk about those things. It could be because you were abused and you learned to keep secrets. And so you kept the secret of what was hurting you. You've kept it all your life. It could be because culturally you were a minority or you were male and you learned that if I don't look perfect or if I, if I reveal too much vulnerability, I won't be accepted or I won't even, um, I won't even succeed in life. Um, I mean, there are so many pathways 
that it's it's really not as we'd say in Arkansas. There's not one way around the barn, you know. <laughs> there are lots of ways. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think it's in its very diversity that it's really fascinating because you can't say okay, A is going to lead to B is going to lead to X, Y, and Z. There there are a lot of ways, but it's mainly the idea that you detach and rigidly the psychology easy word is compartmentalize any kind of hurt or pain you have. You just, in fact, it can grow so automatic that it becomes an unconscious process. If you think about, you know, we all get in our cars and drive, but the first time we did it, we had to think very carefully about what do we do and how do I turn the wheel and I should probably think more about that now than I do because I'm not a hot driver. Um, but these people have done this for so long that it has become just, just automatic, just unconscious. And those are the people I'm most worried about. There are certainly people who are depressed, who fight every day with that depression, who manage that depression, who put a smile on their face and go to work or do whatever they're going to do. And what I would, I call that, you know, that's high functioning depression or smiling depression. When your depression isn't so severe that it can, it prevents you from doing some things in your life that are mandatory or, or about your responsibilities, but you, but you know, you're depressed. You you've been to the doctor and you said, I am depressed. You have, you have been to a physician or a therapist and said, these are the things I'm struggling with. Maybe you're on medication. You exercise a lot. So you manage your bipolar disease or whatever. My most concern, my big, my largest concern, my most passionate concern is for the people who have this unconscious process going on. And it isn't sometimes they've told me that it wasn't until they heard the term perfectly hidden depression that they realized that there was some kind of link between the way they had to look perfect to everyone else and what was really going on inside of them that they knew something was wrong but their lives look great yeah yeah <laughs> the lives look wonderful and people were always saying gosh i wish i were you and um you know, so they pull off this destructive perfectionism in a way that looks to others like great success, the perfect family, the, you know, and so it is really difficult um, to allow yourself to say, wait a minute, I haven't cried in years or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Gosh, that's great. There's so many good things in there, but the last thing you said there is really interesting. The idea that in some ways, High functioning perfectionism scares you more than low functioning perfectionism, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, another, another couple of things I wanted to point out, because I, I just love the way you phrase this about perfectionism, is that when I asked you about the origins of, of perfectionism, two things kind of struck out to me in, in the way you were describing that is that, and I think these are misconceptions that a lot of people have. And, and the first is that perfectionism is a strategy. Right? It, yeah. It's often learned early on in childhood, often as a result of some kind of trauma or, or, or insult or just difficult situation. But fundamentally, it's a strategy. It's something we learned to do because it was, it was helpful at some time, right? right? At some point in our lives. And that it is a thing we've carried on that hasn't been updated, right? Or sort of reassessed. But I think that's so key because people, 
in my experience, a lot of people think of perfectionism, even destructive perfectionism, as kind of a personality trait. Like it's just the way I am. You yeah, know, it's, I just got bad genes or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's so key to kind of elucidate for people that it's it often has origins, um, and it's it's fundamentally it's a learning process. It's something you learn and, and even use. It's a tool. Um, in some well, it can be anything from the really I can never tell anyone I'm angry or I have to hide my, hide my the fact that I was sexually abused to little silly things like um, I'll never forget my mother who was a very southern belle you know heels and hose like your hair is always perfect kind of person used to say to me that I looked sleepy if I didn't um, curl my eyelashes. I, this is a silly little story, but, and I believed her. And so for years, I took out this horrible thing and stuck it on my eye and curled my eyelashes two or three times a day. Finally, when I had a toddler, I was just like, okay, I'm throwing this silly thing away. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and, but I literally, Nick thought people were going to come up to me and go, do you need a cup of coffee? I mean, right. <laughs> are you okay? Uh, do you need a nap? No one said that to me. <laughs> and that was my mother's perfectionism. Yeah. She taught me that's what a lady looks like. And that's what a lady should, you know, how she should um, uh, approach, you know, the rest of the world. And it was so relieving when I finally said through that. And I just kind of look sleepy the rest of my life, I guess. I love it. Well, you know, that kind of touches on one of the things that really resonated with me when I was reading some of your work about perfectionism, the way you thought about perfectionism, you're very clear to, to tie it to this issue of emotional vulnerability and sort of a fear of emotional vulnerability. So, you know, I, I sometimes I, I, the way I think about and conceptualize or, um, perfectionism sometimes is that the misconception is that perfectionism is about being perfect. But I think for a lot of people, it's about feeling perfect. It's about Yes. It's about believing you can't feel imperfect. So what, what do you talk a little bit about this relationship between vulner, emotional vulnerability and perfectionism? Well, such a great question, by the way, seeming and feeling that's, that's really incredible. Um, well, I think that, I mean, believe it or not, I had never heard of Brene Brown when I started researching this perfectionism and, and depression. And, you know, that also got started in a kind of a weird way. I literally was writing a blog post, my normal weekly blog post. And I was thinking about some of these people that I had treated that were very different. And I wrote the post, the perfectly hidden depressed person, are you one? And it went viral. Mm. <laughs> and so, and then there were other, I got, it was on the Huffington post. I was writing for them at the time and I got hundreds of emails. This is me. So that's why I started looking. And I must have been under a rock or something. So anyway, but I found Brene Brown and I read The Gifts of Imperfection and I thought, okay, well, she's certainly talking about this and she's been an incredible force in uh, the psychological world to say to people, it's okay to be vulnerable. In fact, it's a strength to be vulnerable. But what I noticed was, whether it's because she was a researcher and not a clinician, is that I couldn't see her actually making this connection between a hidden depression or a silent depression or a cloaked depression and perfectionism. She didn't go that far. The only person that I could find that did that, and, and his book was still a bestseller, his name is Terrence Real, and he called it a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It. And, but it was specifically for men. 
and he called it covert depression. And in the book, he was sort of making the case that men's depression was substantially different than women's depression, which didn't go too far anywhere, but I still, it's a wonderful book. Absolutely wonderful. So I started writing about what this was and, and, you know, the, the issue with emotional vulnerability, I think is such an important one, because again, in none of those cases that I identified for you were at least some of the paths that you might journey across that, um, or you might, you might be on that, you know, led to this kind of destructive perfectionism, that vulnerability was either not allowed, not encouraged, not possible. Um, you were screamed at that you were whispered to that you better not tell anybody what was really going on at home. I mean, you got the message loud and clear. There are things I must hide. And so, um, and part of that is whatever I feel vulnerable about. You know, what I noticed and to all any clinicians that might be listening to your program, the thread for clinicians, I mean, some people have said, well, how am I supposed to know this is going on if no one says me, you know, I may look perfect to you, but I'm really depressed. I'm thinking about killing myself. Is that you have to notice this, um, this mismatch between what someone is talking about and the way they're talking about it. A man comes to mind that um, came in actually with his wife for therapy and he was retired and his, he has had fallen apart in his retirement. Yeah. Very successful guy, but he was drinking a lot. He was gaining a bunch of weight and he didn't know why. And so he came back in to see me uh, and said, I don't know, there's something there I don't understand. And he was telling me this story about his childhood. He was laughing. He had a really boisterous, funny laugh. He was mm -hmm. a funny guy. He was laughing and saying, yeah, my mother used to throw rocks at me and tell me I wasn't going to amount to anything. Wow, I really showed her. <laughs> wow. And so I said, don't you have a grandson? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, let's go ask him to stand in the front yard. And we're going to throw rocks at him and scream at him that he's never going to be able to mount to anything. Would you think that was funny? He got this look on his face. He said, well, no, of course not. And I said, so did you think that little boy thought it was funny? You decided that you couldn't feel what that really felt like. You weren't safe. Those feelings weren't safe. Right. So you started hiding them. And look what's happened in your adult life. You're out of the situation where you're getting all this affirmation about how successful you are and you're falling apart. So he did some really good work and uh, other people have too. really uh, outstanding hard work because when you, when you have adopted the idea that I just don't go there, I don't go where it's painful. I don't, I don't, why would I want to remember those memories? It is very frightening to do so. And it's, it's shocking and it's, it's uh, unstabilizing, destabilizing. And because you have counted on that, uh, that emotional closet being stuffed with things that you didn't want to think about or talk about. And you don't want to open that door. In fact, I've used the analogy with people sometimes, you know, when you've got garbage that's really stinky, but it's been uh, tied up for a long period of time, you open that garbage. Oh my gosh, 
oh, you know, it's just it's terrible. Well, that's kind of what it's like to start getting some of that stuff out. So it is hard work. It's courageous work. But at the same time, when you can begin to discover that it is really freeing to be honest with yourself and to be vulnerable and choose people carefully that you want to be vulnerable with, you know, you're not going to do that with everybody, but choose people carefully, then you can truly find such self-acceptance um, that it is a, a it's such a gift to give yourself and to give to the people who love you. Right. Yeah. So well put. So we've been dancing around this idea of perfectly hidden depression, um, which you wrote an incredible book on. So let's, let's just kind of um, go with that from, you know, kind of straightforwardly, like what is perfectly hidden depression exactly? Well, as I say, I wish I had come up with the, the dichotomy of the constructive versus destructive perfectionism as I was trying to, you know, write this book. I actually never wanted to write a book. I don't think of myself as a writer. <laughs> Thank gosh that New Harbinger bought it and they made it a much better book than I could have made it. But um, what I was trying to do is, you know, if I renamed it now, I'd probably still name it perfectly in depression, but I'd say something about, you know, um, when destructive perfectionism has has won the war or something, I don't mm, know, gotcha. because they're really they're one and the same thing. Except what I did was what I wanted people to be able to do was think, okay, so what does this look like in real life? You know, how could I take a questionnaire or a test or are there traits? You know, wh what does this look like? And what I came up with the idea was that perfectly hidden depression is a syndrome. And what a syndrome is, the most well-known one is codependence. A, a syndrome is a is a, a system of beliefs and behaviors that you all, that often fall together. Um, so I think that's what perfectly hidden depression is, and I think that's how you can begin to recognize yourself as, oh, wait a minute, I didn't think that was a problem, but taken over the top, it could be. So I came up with these ten traits, just. Actually, what I did was I listed all these people that I'd seen, and then I tried to list, you know, the things that might be commonalities in them and kind of came through with this very interactive, entangled set of traits that, that are, um, you know, and there, I'm sure there are more. That was just, uh, and, and, and you don't, you're not going to have all of them, but they are, they exist in everybody that I have worked with that I would say has identified with perfectly in depression or they've told me those are when we've already talked a good deal about highly perfectionistic that is fueled by shame, basically destructive perfectionism. These people are highly over-responsible. Um, they are task-oriented, accomplishment-oriented. They're very analytical. They like to stay in their head. They're really kind of uncomfortable when the conversation gets emotional. They can, research has shown interestingly enough that perfectionists can identify emotions. They can say, oh yes, I feel really sad. Hmm. They cannot feel it. They can't express it. They can't connect with it very easily. Interesting fact. They also tend to discount or deny any kind of bad things that happen to them. These are people who worry, but they don't want to be seen as warriors. So they just take a lot of control of things. They're highly into control. And if my husband were sitting here, he said, 
need for control, your picture should be by that phrase because <laughs> you need a lot of control. Um, and he's right. I'm very controlling or I can be not a, not a strength of mine. Um, uh, let's see some of the others. Um, these are people who count their blessings. They are, they're a positive, optimistic kind of force around the people that they're around. Um, but they, what they don't want to say is, and what they can't allow themselves to see is that their every blessing has an underbelly. Um, you know, I'm very lucky that I got to write a book and that it was, it was bought by a publisher, which I got help with that. I mean, who, I couldn't even imagine doing that 10 years ago. Did it, was it hard? It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I think I aged about five years and two years. So it was hard. People who struggle with this aren't going to let themselves talk about that. The okay. That's a great, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there. I think it's a really good point is that it's, it's people who they, they count their blessings, which in and of itself, obviously is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. I think people would agree, but it's that, it's that paired with the inability to even acknowledge negative things in their life or, or that are kind of tied to some of the, to, to acknowledge the complexity, right? Exactly. You know, oh, I shouldn't complain about that because I have this, this, and this. And, you know, why not? <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't mean you're, you're, you know, the glass is half full and half empty by definition. And so, you know, if you can only talk about the half full part, then you're sort of missing out on this ability to connect with the, the stuff that's not so fun, that stuff that's hard work, the stuff that's, you know, we're all trudging through this pandemic. You know, we all want to stay optimistic about it, but gosh, some days are really hard and very hard for some. Um, that, that's that, it's an interesting point. I, I've, it, it relates to perfectionism, I think, in that I've noticed a, a lot of these types of people who have a hard time acknowledging the negatives and are kind of like, um, aggressively cheerful <laughs> all the time. Um, yeah. there, there's kind of a like uh, rigid positivity is rigid, but that's a great term. Yeah. But there's kind of a, um, a slippery slope fear. Like if they even acknowledge even a tiny bit, the, the, the negatives in their life, they're going to turn into these like whiny complainers who all they think about is the negatives and they're going to end up super depressed and making everyone around them miserable. And there, there's this kind of, um, well, in a way, but that's the, the perfectionism connection, right? It's this like, I have to stay perfectly in cheerfulness and optimism or right. else I'm going to slide into something awful. Exactly. Exactly. And, and of course, what they do is then whatever resentment they have or whatever struggles they're having, um, you know, they, they just, again, that becomes something else to stuff away in that emotional closet. Um, just a couple of the other traits, just so sure. we round yeah. things out. Um, these people are great friends and they're very sincere friends. They're mm -hmm. not faking friendship. They truly care about you. They want to help you. They just don't want you to figure them out. So they will be very reticent. In fact, I very much used to be this way. I can remember the years that I finally began to change this, that I, if I were in a bad mood or if I was struggling with something, I wouldn't smile and say, I'm fine. I'm doing great. You know, to my really good friends, I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling. 
So this is very much part. And then the last, and which is sort of, uh, it's just intuitive, is that these people are often very professionally successful. Yeah. I mean, they are too great. We love people like my cataract doctor. You know, we love people to be perfectionistic at work. They were going to applaud them and, and give them bonuses and give them the next project and hand them the responsibility. But what they don't do well is emotional intimacy. And so they are likely to be in relationships with either people who want them to overfunction, like maybe a narcissist would. They want them to take all the responsibility because their their partner is an underfunctioner. They may attract somebody who also is very uncomfortable with conflict, and so it's sort of and so they're very conflict averse, and they all look like they have these perfect looking lives. The lucky ones are married or partnered with people who actually will say to them, you know, I've been with you for 12 years and I've never seen you lose it. I've never seen you. You never admitted being tired. You, you know, what is, I don't even feel like I know you. Uh, it, it's like, I, 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 can you let me know you? And they'll go, well, Ooh, no, <laughs> you know, until they finally realize themselves. Yes. I want you to be able to know me. Of those people I, I talked about, you can tell I'm kind of passionate about this, Nick. I'm sorry. I love it. Um, these people that were kind enough to give me their time, I asked them uh, to, to interview. I asked them, why? Why would you risk, you know, your anonymity? You know, because, of course, I knew their names. I had their email addresses. Why would you risk that? And they said, because all of them said, I wouldn't wish this life on anyone. I am so lonely and I've been despairing and I've thought about killing myself a hundred times. And, and yet, even when I, if I risk telling someone, you know, sometimes I think about hurting myself or sometimes they'll look at me and go, or they have looked at me and gone, you, you always are upbeat. You're up, mm. you, you have this great, what are you, what are you depressed about? And they feel this shame, incredible shame that they even thought about maybe admitting to someone, yeah, I have down days too. Gosh, yeah, it's so awful. Um, but I, I think it's so important, you, this idea of perfectly hidden depression, it, one, of the, one of the real strong overlaps that's, that's easy to miss, but that connects what people, kind of classic depression, when people think of someone being depressed and being very extremely sad and inactive and kind of hold up and, and not connected with anyone. I think what we, what we miss is that you can be extremely active, gregarious, extroverted, ambitious, hardworking, and you can feel just as lonely and cut off and miserable, if not more so than that person who's, you know, in the fetal position in their room and hasn't got out in three weeks, right? That's right. That, and it's right. just wild. Like right. You... It is wild. It, it, you know, the, the, the diagnostic criteria, which so many clinicians get caught up on, understandably, you know, there, there are two criteria that you have to meet to be diagnosed with clinical depression. And one of them is a depressed mood that is noticeable to self or others and is a change from your normal uh, way of being. Well, those, these people don't fit that. <laughs> The second one is anhedonia, the lack of pleasure in previously pleasurable activities. These people don't fit that. So, you know, so many of these folks told me, I have been to a therapist, I have been to a doctor and said, I'm really struggling. In fact, I talked to a, 
a wonderful uh, young guy. Y'all are all young to me. (laughs) (laughs) Young guy from New York, two guys who were kind enough to uh, interview me last weekend. And he said he had gone to a psychiatrist. He's pretty bubbly, also a mental health professional. And he had said to the guy, there's something wrong. And the psychiatrist had literally looked at him and said, "There could you are too well put together for you to be depressed. And um, Terry Cheney, I interviewed her. She wrote uh, Modern Madness and some other books about bipolar. She told me that some people had told her that. If that was her hypomania. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so we've really got to, as a culture, as a profession, achingly, I've had parents reach out to me and say, my son killed himself. You know, he, he had just been accepted to this wonderful college and he, or he was in that wonderful college mm-hmm. and he hung himself or he, you know, it's just, we have to stop buying into that these kids, these friends, these family members um, are, are okay because they look okay. Now that doesn't mean you have the responsibility of saving them or fixing them or being sure. a mind reader. But if we all know that there is this rubric that's not very well recognized, that if we're just aware of it and we ask the, some questions that we might not need, you know, think of asking at first, then perhaps we can help some people. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so important. It's so hard though, because we're, we, we're sort of trained to look, when we look for signs or symptoms, we look for positive things, obvious, like different things that are new manifestations. It's a much harder thing to look for the absence of things, right? To see the gaps is that you're literally looking for invisible things, for hidden things. Well, but the, you know, again, going back to what I used as a clinician to begin to identify these people was this incongruence or mismatch between what they were saying and how they were saying it. I remember this lady who literally, Nick was telling me that she'd been raped the week before she went to college and she'd never told anybody. And the only reason she told me was because I would asked her in the initial session about sexual abuse and she denied it. And she had this smile on her face. I, I, was, I, I don't know if you're gonna use the video, but I'm smiling just the way she was smiling. She goes, well, you know, I don't really know if this is important, but you asked me about that in the first session. And I was, you know, I found myself at 3 a.m., you know, by the beach and I'd been raped and I guess it was drug induced. I don't know. But, I, you know, I just went on and never thought about it. Hmm. And sure enough, guess what was wrong? She hmm. was in relationship after relationship after relationship that was devoid of any kind of real intimacy. intimacy yeah. yeah, she didn't have it. She wasn't allowing anybody to see the real her. In fact, she told me she had one group of friends that she kind of drank a couple of glasses of wine with and let her hair down with, but they still didn't really know the real her. She had this other entirely different group of friends who, you know, were more spiritual and, you know, and neither group of friends knew about the other one. That's how divided. How compartmentalized. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah, there's so much we could, we could go into here. <laughs> I, <laughs> I could talk with you for a while. Yeah. Let, let's kind of get into though. So we, we've kind of fleshed out, uh, we've talked about perfectionism and then sort of contrasted it with this version of perfectionism that, that really is sort of a, a strategy in a way for masking depression. Um, 
that's a very different kind of syndrome from kind of classical depression. So, so we've kind of fleshed that out a little bit. Let's talk about what do you do? Like, how do you help someone who is struggling with this? Like, what does the sort of change process look like? Sure. Uh, by now you can tell I'm a storyteller. So I will tell you a quick little story in love that it. New Harbinger, um, who published the book, said, we really love the concept of this book, but um, we need a treatment strategy or we're not going to publish it. And by the way, you have two weeks. Wow. <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> two weeks. Okay. So what I did was I really sat down by that time, I, but I've been a therapist since 1993, so quite a while. Um I sat down and thought, what do I do with almost all my patients? And I came up with five different steps. First, they had to decide a problem was the problem, was a problem. I mean, for example, your clinician, a lot of people with bipolar two disorder don't think it's a problem. <laughs> they don't see it as a problem. There are a lot of people who, you know, they, they don't, they don't want to see some of their issues as issues. Perfectionism is huge in that way in that it's been a real friend. So you have to make that distinction between how and when and uh, their perfectionism became destructive. That's the first step. And that's not an easy one. And I think uh, as you're kind of alluding to, to acknowledge trade-offs, right? That these things are doing something for you, right? It's, it's not like they're completely, it's not like, in a way, it's not like they're completely destructive. They, they stick around because they're actually, they're fulfilling some kind of need. They're addressing some sort of need. It's just yeah. that the trade-offs are profoundly um, outweighing those in the right. long run, those positives. Right. So the second step became a commitment. And um, what I mean by that is there's certain, and what I wrote about in the book is that there are certain hurdles, especially perfection, perfectionists that have to be uh, jumped over and managed in order to really do the work. I mean, for example, they'll try, they'll start with something too hard because, you know, or they'll, um, they'll feel like they have to do it perfectly. I have a, a patient one time, she'd come in about six or seven times and she said, you know, let's get on with this. This is taking too long. <laughs> like, it's already well, been three sessions. Why, why are we moving? Three sessions and you're out and you're done. Um, so, you know, there's certain hurdles. Again, just giving it up can be so frightening. Let it, beginning to let someone in, even just one person in, uh, even just sitting down in a conversation with a trusted friend and saying, you know, this is the only thing I can say right now, but I'm not who I sometimes want people to think I am. That's where you start because that's where you are. that's part of the commitment. The third stage is um, confrontation. And what that means is uh, the silly things like making sure you you're, you uh, curl your eyelashes to um, all kinds of very, very serious things. Um, you have to confront those rules that you were taught, that you absorbed, that you came to believe the musts, the shoulds, the oughts, the have tos, the always, the nevers. And again, that was your childhood strategy to stay emotionally safe. What do you need to change? You know, what is no longer working in your adult life? And it's keeping you silent and hidden and depressed and hidden, silently depressed. And um, you really can begin to challenge some of those rules. It's very CBT, very cognitive behavioral. Yeah. The fourth one is connection. And this may be the most difficult sort of, 
what I suggest, uh, again, in the book, not to mention the book 14,000 times, but um, is a trauma timeline. And I want to say quickly that if you have severe trauma in your life, you should not do this by yourself. You should do this with the help of a, a therapist trained in trauma. But you go back through your early childhood and into your teenagerhood, and you can take it as far as you want it. And you both list the positive things that happen and, and the emotions and the and how that impacted you, but as, as well, the more negative things and the more painful things. And, and then what you begin to see are the patterns in those things and how those things are connected, how your childhood is connected with now your adulthood. That is such a, sorry, just to interrupt you again, that is such a powerful exercise, I think, to, because, you know, you meant one way, I think people who struggle with perfectionism compartmentalize it's not they don't just compartmentalize their their emotions for instance or their vulnerabilities they in a, in a strange way they compartmentalize their lives so yeah. and and doing this timeline is a way to sort of not force exactly but but kind of nudge them to step back and see the bigger kind of narrative and story which is understandably scary i think for for them another really good point if i write another book will you co-author it with me <laughs> let's do it <laughs> Um, oh, that just gave me shivers to think about another book. <laughs> but um, yes, I would totally agree with you. That was back then. This is now. Why should I worry about that? Right. You know, so an invitation to say, you know, this might be important for you to do. Um, and actually, the way I have uh, organized the book is that there are over 60 exercises. It's really a workbook. Um, and I did that because I knew how difficult this trauma timeline would be. And so the book starts out with doing exercises and making recommendations of easier things to do, because once you get to that trauma timeline, you have to have some support. You have to have some, uh, a basis for understanding why you're doing this work. Cause this is hard work. I, I love that by the way, I'm gonna interrupt you again, but the, when in reading your book, uh, one of the things I really loved about it that's so uncommon in, in this genre of, of books is that a, a lot of books are, are way too conceptual. There's, there's nothing kind of practical. There's no stories. There's no actual tangible, what do I do? A lot of books though are too, they're these huge, big exercises or these long elaborate case studies that just like going on for pages and pages. But, but your book is awesome because it, I, and I really loved it that, it, that it's so, they're, they're, they're the right balance. They both the kind of personal stories that are so powerful, but they're not overwhelming. They, they kind of give you a window into someone's life or these little kind of bite-sized exercises that are very non-intimidating. They're very accessible. They're, they're very, okay, this was a little uncomfortable, but I could probably do this. Um, so well, I, kudos I, to you. I, like it's I, fantastic. I what that means to me because I, that's exactly what I tended to do, you know, my whole goal um, as a therapist has been to make this therapeutic process approachable to everyone. And I think if you start out too conceptually or and then, and, 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 or you spend too much on the why and not enough on the practical or too much on the practical and not enough on the background that you have to balance it out and make it doable. The fifth thing is very important. Um, what I have learned through the years is that insight is an incredible gift that you can learn all kinds of things from insight and it helps you connect the dots and gives you aha moments and you can have these sort of revelatory experiences that are really neat and you just never see the world the same way but if you if that doesn't change your behavior or change your beliefs or change your feelings then that's not 
that's not as power, that's not as hopeful. Insight in and of itself is not hopeful. I think where you get your hope is from change. And so I have all of one chapter, <laughs> oh goodness, talking about the different changes that you can start making and how I organized it was simply to say, okay, these are the 10 traits. Let's look at how you could challenge this belief. I must do this. I have to do this and begin to challenge those things. And so every trait has its accompanying challenge to it. And of course, this is a lifelong thing. I mean, you know, that's, that, that's going to take a long time to, to process, but you can have fun with it. Sure. Yeah. So let's, we're kind of wrapping up here, but I, we've been talking a lot about, um, about perfectionism and, and perfectly hidden depression and, and sort of implicitly from the perspective of, um, you know, if someone's listening, maybe they do struggle with this. I, I want to kind of shift things around though, and, and take the perspective of m- maybe someone's listening who lives with someone or interacts regularly with someone and they're listening to this and they're going, Oh my gosh, like, yeah, this, this kind of sounds like my spouse or my, my child or so uh, do you have any thoughts specifically for, or kind of recommendations or, or words of encouragement even for people who, um, yeah, who live with people who they suspect are kind of struggling with perfectly hidden depression? Like, how do you, how do you start to kind of broach this topic or be supportive maybe? Um, how do you think about this? I had those very questions come to, into my email. So um, I, I think it's, it's, you have to, you know, you can't say, you know, you really got to change this. I read this thing. I mean, you <laughs> be forceful. And, and if certainly, you know, if you're probably in that last group, if, if you're someone who realizes that as your, your child or, you know, you don't have an investment in them being that way, which is huge. Um, so if you don't have an investment, it actually concerns you. I think you talk about yourself, not in a, um, egotistical way, but in a way of saying, you know, your, your best friend uh, moved away and, and you're only going to get to have Zooms with her. And yet I haven't seen you be upset about it. I, I haven't seen you even, you haven't even talked to me about it or whatever you see them facing, you know, or just say, well, you seem to always need something to do. I never see you sit down and it, it, and it concerns me for you. I, I actually, uh, I, I saw this thing called perfectly hidden depression. And would you even be open to reading something or listening to a podcast? You know, um, because I just wonder if this could be you, you know, just very gentle. Um, these people fear you seeing behind them. Now, you know, if they're your partner, uh, and hopefully there's some trust there, then you may likely be more able to do this than someone else or a best friend or something like that. Um, and so I think you have to go carefully. You know, even the people that have come in to see me, Nick, and they say, I'll never forget this one girl. In fact, she's the, she's the, the young woman I talk about in the first chapter of the book. But she said, she sat down and she said, I, I was trying out Periscope back then, which I... Uh, just not for me. I don't even know if it exists. But um, she said, I heard you on Periscope and I've got this perfectly hidden depression thing, but I want to tell you one thing. I can't talk about it today. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and and, I, and she, I said, okay. I said, it must be really hard for you to talk about yourself. She goes, it's really hard. 
She said, so today I'm just going to sit in the room with you and I'm going to tell you about my life, but I don't really want those, any of those in-depth questions today. I said, okay, that's fine. You know, and so, so she gave me this very factual history of her life. And so we had to start where she was, you know, and that's what's so important. I mean, you, in all of this work, there's no perfect way to do it. You have to just begin where you are. And, but I can tell you that the, the, the promised land at the end is to realize, uh, someone asked me the question the other day, if you had one takeaway from the book, what, what would it be? And that was sort of, you can tell I'm very verbal about all this. So that was hard for me. But I said, you know, if people come away with the idea that their vulnerabilities do not define them any more than their strengths and vice versa, that would be a wonderful takeaway. And I use this example, and sadly, I'm not proud of this, but I've been married three times, the last time for 31 years, so I finally got it right. And I also have three uh, letters after my name. I have a PhD. I'm much prouder of the PhD than I am the three marriages. But they both are facts about me. Mm -hmm. And I don't think one of them, either one of them define me any more than the other one does. I feel more shame or remorse or regret about the other. And I've had to do work around that. But, you know, we, we are so stuck in this. I can't let anybody see what I'm struggling with because that will become the way they think of me for the rest of their lives. And what I have found in talking about my own vulnerabilities, I have panic disorder. I've had anorexia in the past. I have these divorces in my, in my past that people actually appreciate the transparency. Yeah. They trust me more because, you know, of that. I don't know if they respect me more because of it. That's really, that's up to them, but it's, it's, it does not take away from who you are. It, it adds to who you are and gives you more depth and actually maybe you're even a little more approachable. Thank you, Margaret, for, for sharing that. I think, I mean, I, I think I can feel it. I'm sure our listeners will be able to feel it too. Just in, in hearing you talk about that, there is a lot of, there's vulnerability and strength at the same time, um, which is, I think, exactly to your point. Well, before I let you go, I've got one more question for you. It's a little off the wall. <laughs> so um, in addition to being a, 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 practice, a psychologist and a practicing clinician and, and doing therapy with folks, you've not only have you written a book, uh, which we've, we've kind of alluded to, but you've been, you've been a longtime blogger. You, know, you blog regularly. You, you have your own podcast. Um, so here's my question. Should more therapists be uh, bloggers or podcasters? <laughs> well, um, that's a great question. I, d I don't think it's going to be good for people who still feel it strongly that people really shouldn't know too much about their therapists because there's a lot of, when you start blogging, if, if you blog it all about yourself uh, and it's hard not to, sure. um, then, you know, you are definitely choosing more transparency. Um, it's also, I, I will tell you that it was hard for me to do this. I was used to people coming into my office and I would see them one or two or three at a time and leave. And I'm kind of an introvert. So to come out and be more extroverted and to put my own work out there uh, was very hard for me. In fact, the, I had a friend actually hit the publish button on my first blog post because I kept telling her I wasn't ready to do <laughs> I it. I love that. <laughs> and she said, yes, you are. And she hit it. So, um, 
it's a little bit, uh, it's a, it takes some getting used to in that, um, you know, I've gotten some criticism. I've gotten a fair amount of criticism. Um, so you have to be prepared for that. Uh, and yet what I have found, um, I mean, I am, I'm honored and celebrating that we're up to almost 2 million downloads on my podcast. Wow. I think, you know, how many people have I hopefully reached um, through that, that might never darken the door of a therapist, but they're, they're interested and they want to grow. I, I heard from, uh, I got a letter just yesterday from a man who's in prison. He didn't tell me why, but he said the podcast have really meant so much to him. And because they allowed them to start having, you know, iPads and listening to podcasts and things like that. And he wrote me this beautiful letter about how when he got out, he was hoping to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you just, you know, I, my podcast, I used to start it this way all the time. Sometimes I forget, but I say I wanted, I decided I wanted to extend the walls of my practice because I felt as if, okay, um, you know, what is, um, what is a question that I heard from somebody? I, I learned so much from the people that yeah. uh, I interviewed. He, he was talking to me about what his mentor had said and what is a worthy enough cause for you to, or purpose for you to give your life to. And I felt after my son left that I really, my purpose became wanting others to try to understand what therapy had to offer and what psychology had to offer and what emotional support and all kinds of things you could get from therapy. And so that's, and then the book came as a, the book came as an extra gift or <laughs> whatever. And the podcast was simply because um, the publishers were telling me that I didn't have enough identity. And, um, uh, and so I thought of something I would really enjoy doing. And I had, I had been a jingle singer in my twenties. So I was accustomed to a microphone. And so I thought, Oh, I'll get back behind a microphone again and I'll podcast a little bit. <laughs> So, um, you know, and it's been much more successful than I thought it would be, but that's a quite an honor. So, well, it's been an honor having you, uh, on the show with us and I really appreciate you making the time and, and, and being so vulnerable and willing to share and, and talk about, about everything. If, I, if I'm trying to encourage others to do it, I, I better be able to do it myself. Right. Absolutely. So Margaret, where can people, um, go to learn more about you and your work? Sure, sure. Well, I have a website that's creatively named drmargaretrutherford.com. Um, my, um, my podcast is the Self Work Podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. That's S-E-L-F-W-O-R-K. And the book is everywhere. The book is on, at, on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble, at Barnes & Noble. You can order it at your local bookstore. It is not a New York Times bestselling book, so you might have to ask them to order it. I wish it were, but it's not. Um, so, but give your local bookstore some, some business uh, these days. It's also available uh, by, as an ebook and an audiobook. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.